Welcome to the Wizards of Dapps podcast, where we interview the creators of various decentralized applications in the Web3 ecosystem. We learn about how they are built and the insights that come from shipping. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Peter. And I'm Bethany. Welcome back to this week's episode of Wizards of Dapps podcast. We talked to Gabby Deason here about, you know, all things NFTs and all things DeFi and the convergence of the both. He's one of the creators of the of a very early crypto gaming project called Battle Races. And we also go into his experiences building a blockchain gaming over the last two, three years and, you know, kind of what he would do differently. He offers really interesting advice on, you know, new founders looking to emerge and build something in the NFT gaming space. And yeah, so it's a lively chat about all things gaming and business models. I hope you all enjoy this podcast. And once again, thank you to 1KX for supporting this podcast. So what's your background? How did you get into this space? I come from game development. So I actually started making games in 2003, 17 years making games. In 2014, I started a mobile game company called Altitude Games. We started making uh, free-to-play mobile games, uh, still releasing them to this day. But in 2017, we started experimenting about Ethereum when we heard about the concept of smart contracts. So early 2017, we we're actually already uh, experimenting with what Ethereum and smart contracts could possibly mean for games. We were really just captivated by the notion of non-fungible tokens and like a lot of my brain power towards understanding crypto so that I could understand non-fungible tokens better. In the mobile space, it had become a lot uh, very saturated. Like if you look at the top 100, it's like the same genres. You needed to have millions of dollars of user acquisition money. So it was really more like, uh, I would say, an execution space, big money backing by Tencent is the right VCs. Whereas in the NFT space, like everything was so new, it's Wild West. There was a lot of room for, I would say, new thinking and new experimentation. And, you know, I mean, it was way too early. Nobody really understood what we were doing in 2018 or so. And I would say that not a lot of people still understand now, but it was just a breath of fresh air because there was such an open possibility space to try new things. What do you think about like composability and the dissonance it might have with the traditional game industry? I don't have too much knowledge of the gaming industry, but a lot of the defensibility around the bigger companies revolve around owning IP and creating these moats where even having this fairly more dystopian production style, studio style, right? Where it's like indie devs or smaller gaming studios would basically be contracted to build games and larger companies would own all of it. There's definitely a dissonance with like the idea of composable games and the metaverse, right? And so on. So this is a great question because coming from the traditional gaming space and trying to explain uh, what non-fungible tokens are and why game assets could live in a blockchain, the thing that kind of got shot down the most and even I would say ridiculed or laughed at was the idea that assets could be portable uh, inside of different games. I got a lot of comments such as like, well, why would Blizzard ever do that? Of course they wouldn't want to do that. It's it's not good for their bottom line right now. Why would a sword in one game want to appear as 
a gun on another game, they were comparing it with the mental models of, I would say, like how previous games work. And they just couldn't understand it. It was highly ridiculous. And I think you really need something like a native metaverse game to really make use of the power of composability. And I would say that even now, we have very few examples that really work. Uh, if you're working on a game such as, for example, Battle Racers or Axie Infinity, number one, of course, you want to make your own IP strong first. And number two, there would be maybe limited uh, crossovers, but we haven't really seen truly composable game assets in the same way that DeFi has really embraced composability. It feels like the traditional gaming industry is kind of like centralized finance or TradFi. Very much so, like very defensive of their own IP. They're just used to this way of doing things and they cannot imagine that things can be opened up and it would be better for them as a company. I kind of see this like comparison, right? And the really interesting crypto native games that use crypto native business models and such as like community governance and such, right? They're likely going to appear within the crypto native space. And imagine the Aves and the synthetics as well, the compounds of the gaming world, right? Like, you know, in terms of how they innovate and how they push what's possible. The funny thing about DeFi was like, prior to the concept of DAI, no one really solved the concept of like a stable coin, at least a US dollar on the blockchain. A lot of you have tried, you know, and the best we had was like Tether. Even though like uh, DAI 1.0 had $5 million of liquidity, there was only $5 million of it in existence, and they really struggled with like liquidity and so on. Once they did kind of solve that problem, we saw lending markets take off, like Compound and Aave. They enabled all these other like derivatives and, you know, financial instruments kind of merge on top of this. And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned like we haven't seen it. And I would argue that where do you think the crypto native gaming or NFT land is in, in terms of regarding to DeFi, right? Like in terms of maturity, progress, et cetera. I think the primitives are still being built, even when the concept of DAI and the CDP came out. Like it took a, le- a lot of people a really long time to understand why you would lock up $10 to borrow five. I struggled with it for a long time. A lot of people, uh, especially the DeFi skeptics, like, openly mocked it. And now it's such a core building block of composability that we can't imagine ourselves doing DeFi without going to some sort of a vault and borrowing one asset, lending out another asset. And yeah, now it's all over the place. So I think kind of those building blocks of composability are kind of still being built. Uh, there are some interesting projects in the like NFT times DeFi space that start providing liquidity and composability. And what really excites me is that uh, these concepts from DeFi are still relatively new to the NFT space. And yeah, there's still so much that uh, we can invent right now. For me, like this is the most exciting part of my career in my entire life. You started experimenting you know, with your studio, right? Turns 17. You're talking about these ideas, right? Uh, around crypto gaming. And these ideas were not the most popular within the traditional gaming industry. You went out and you built battle races. The last time I played it was like, or used it, right? A betting game that you, where you have your own race, your own drone, or like your racer. Think of Hot Wheels. And then you're like in Decentraland and you have these like circuits and you race them, right? And you can kind of like buy different parts and then create your own unique racer, right? You're like your own car. How did you kind of start that? And what was the initial thinking around that? How has um, your thinking around blockchain gaming evolved over time? 
there were two kinds of games that were popular when we started the concept of battle racers. One of them was uh, Crypto Kitties and basically like a thousand breeding clones that basically relied on uh, endless NFT inflation as a business model. And the second were basically hot potato games wherein, you know, you made money as long as someone bought something off you. Those were pretty much the only two games, crypto countries, crypto celebrities, all of that. They were like all sorts of themes, just like the current farming craze that we see right now. Yeah, and I reflexively like do not like doing a, like a copycat theme or, you know, just a clone of a food farm. I want to be a little more original than that. So one of the things that we wanted to do was, uh, number one, we didn't want to base our game on either collectible card games or breeding. Second is that we wanted sort of an active uh, gameplay action. And what happened then was uh, Decentraland had this metaverse gaming fund that they were using to partner with game studios to build games inside of Decentraland. And we were selected as part of that group. So the thinking became from what kind of crypto game can we make inside of Decentraland? Decentraland, like, uh, I guess it has its strengths and weaknesses. It looks great. It's great as a social platform. If you want to do something twitchy, like in a lot of games, uh, it's probably not the best environment from that. So that's why we settled on, like, you're like in a race, toy race car, like RC racing environment. You can walk around, you can see the tracks. You wouldn't have active racing, but you you will still have uh, basically power-ups to push. That was the how we were able to implement the game and then the composability of the parts. You can mix and match your parts, which should give you different stats instead of a breeding option. That's kind of how we thought about it. What was the business model, I guess, of V1 battle races back then? How did you think about the long-term sustainability and how would we eventually become some sort of, you know, uh, have uh, find modes or advantages, right? Or like find stickiness. How did you think about it back then? This was uh, pre-Uniswap and pre-SLP days. So, of course, everyone started with an item sale. And that's also what we did. We sold around 600 Ether worth of crates, which had car parts. What I could see was that the long-term game, which was pretty hard to achieve, uh, was really uh, earning money for marketplace fees. And I think even now, unless you're a pure play marketplace or a very strong game like Axie Infinity, it's very hard for you to uh, basically earn money from marketplace because you know you're probably taking somewhere between two to four percent. And you know, at scale, that is definitely the correct business model for a lot of blockchain-based games with you know native crypto assets. But uh, before you get there, it's kind of hard. So there seems to be this weird push and pull where you have to do an item sale. And then you either raise some money from investors or you basically sell more NFTs and hope that your community picks them up until the time that you are sustainable in, uh, from your marketplace. And I think even the strongest games, for example, uh, maybe CryptoKitties or the Axie guys, even though they have extremely strong marketplaces, they still had to raise money to kind of fulfill their long-term visions. How have you continued to evolve and think about the long-term sustainability of battle races as a project. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts on, you know, folks building crypto games recently. And it's definitely interesting to kind of hear that others like Margaret, right, on like the Delphi podcast, like she was saying that a lot of DeFi concepts and ideas and primitives, uh, such as like even just like fair distributions or like 
crowd distributions really help uh, stimulate a lot of new ideas. Have you thought much about what's been happening in the crazy land of DeFi and how those ideas might be incorporated within, I guess, this nascent like gaming world? The biggest game changer in the way that the business models of blockchain-based games is really uh, Axie Infinity's SLP. So actually, before SLP came out, Axie also had their problems basically with uh, rampant inflation because, you know, and I was playing the game heavily back then as well. The best way to make money was to be a breeder and basically breed a lot of Axies and sell them to new players. That also was the model of CryptoKitties. And even though uh, Axie had a battling aspect, it could quickly devolve to a point where everyone has more Axies than they need. And when that happens, pretty much like the economy grinds to a halt. So they were able to arrest that by basically moving away from experience points based to creating this dynamic cryptocurrency called SLP. It's a resource in-game, variable supply. You mint it when you win a game. You burn it, and its only use as a token is to breed more axes. And that means that there is this dynamic repricing of breeding, which allowed for people to think about, you know, is it worth the price of SLP to breed an axie? And second, which is, I think, the bigger innovation, was that it gave a spot price to SLP because it was available in Uniswap. And now people could earn from it without actually having to have a lot of axes. You could just have three very strong axes with seven braids, not by any other ones. It really opened up the game. It opened up the game to a lot of new players who could just buy three very used axes that are kind of still decent in battle. And that's kind of led to the explosion that they've had today off, off the back of that innovation. I'm struggling to get past level 10 for some reason in the story mode. I have three pretty shit axes, I think. I think they're pretty bad. And I've invested a lot of time in them, but I'm like level something, level nine. And then I'm like, not sure if I should get new ones and like redo the whole bloody storyline. Going through that. I actually never played adventure mode. I let my son play adventure mode and I just play arena. Every time I play arena, I get like wrecked really bad. Never been good at games. It's kind of embarrassing. So I stopped playing that. SLP was sick when it first came out. It was kind of like a moment of like, is this supposed to be worth anything? Yeah, exactly. And for a long time, it wasn't really worth anything. Absolutely. It shows you the magic of combining NFTs with basically an ERC-20 economy. And that's kind of what I've been riffing off ever since, finding like interesting ways to combine ERC-20, ERC-721, 11.55, what have you, in, in new and interesting ways, uh, using the concept of composable primitives in DeFi, applying that to NFTs. And there's just so much possibility space at the moment. I think the unique thing about crypto and Web3 is its ability for you to program incentives and change and coordinate people and networks of actors. People talk about DeFi and is it actually doing anything? And I kind of see uh, DeFi as like this huge casino. DeFi will stay, like sure, if people want to bring the casino to like more people and to the mainstream, great. But I kind of always see it as this like really useful casino engine. I actually think like to coordinate people, you always need incentives. You can't coordinate people without incentives, not on a large scale, at least. Having like coordinated smaller DAOs with very low incentive, we eventually had to like follow on and design incentive programs. And like, it just didn't work. Even coordinating small groups of people for a longer period of time without aligned incentives and kind of excitation of like upside. 
I think it's about enabling that without making incentives, without making the community transactional. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't have a native token, it's harder to coordinate incentives, right? Yeah, it's really hard to coordinate it. And I think it's like the DeFi engine is like how we find liquidity and the deeper and enables deeper incentives, more meaningful incentives as well. You can play Axies and earn like five bucks an hour, right? One day, it's who knows, you could keep some of the SLP or maybe you get rewarded for another token, right? Like for reputation. And maybe like you play it for a couple of years and you can actually find meaningful uh, like amounts of money from participating in games. You hear all these stories of how many people actually learned basically how to trade off playing RuneScape, arbitraging like in-game assets at the Grand Exchange. Imagine all those hours actually like converted and into something more meaningful. Hey, like in the future, it's like you can actually, you can pay for your education or you can like actually live off these games, right? And they're acknowledged as something legitimate because of the genuine ability. It's not about upside, but the fact that like they're thriving uh, liquid economies. It's great. It's actually uh, what I spend a lot of time thinking about now. You're really right when you say that DeFi is about coordinating incentives. When I started getting into yield farming, you know, I was kind of late into yield farming. Uh, the first time I got in was, I think, the last three or four days of uh, the Wi-Fi issuance. Luckily, I still got a little bit. That was late. We heard about Compound and we were like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it sounds stupid. But the people who were doing it, uh, they're already getting rich, right? When I kind of dug deeper into yield farming, and you know, especially when the first time I uh, opened up the interface of Yam, I was like, holy shit, this is game mechanics. All of DeFi is actually game mechanics as applied to finance. So it's not blockchain games, because blockchain games is a very different beast. But uh, I, I like to call it gamified finance, because that's basically what it is. Games have this system that rewards and penalizes like the right and wrong behavior. And here's real money. Yeah, exactly. Like, how can we coordinate people so that we achieve a desired financial outcome? That is pretty much all of what all of DeFi is saying. It's like, you know, the DIPEG. Uh, multiple protocols are coordinating to align and set, to kind of bring it back to parity, right? I believe it recently when there was a downturn, it's like, you know, under is pushing for like curve protocol changes to enable like to fix something with the die bonding curve so that they can have deeper liquidity and hence like repay the debt. But that was pretty interesting. Multiple protocols are enabling like a line and, you know, in some ways impact that very, very like idea of like a die tag. Yeah. And you could never see this outside of our space. I think we kind of take it for granted because we are living in that space right now. But for people who in maybe even, you know, game companies and traditional finance, even having API access is such a big deal. But being able to see the source code of your competitor, basically, that's their secret sauce. They guard it with their life. And here, the secret sauce is basically in plain sight for everyone to see, for anyone to copy. So that means that it's not your secret sauce anymore. And something else has to be the secret sauce, right? Right. Your ability to innovate and bring something new to the table will now be what differentiates you, right? That's going to be the difference between, and it's about people, right, in a way. Web3 is all open source. You know, everyone learns from each other. Everyone can copy from each other. Everyone's leveraging each other's learnings, right? All the data is on-chain. We saw how successful Compound's distribution was. We saw the fact Uniswap had, right, like the, their distribution. In a weird way, like, we're all learning from that. It's pretty exciting to actually, like, 
watch what comes out of the this kind of recent cycle right of developments and project launches maybe a couple months down the line right because for sure like people are definitely like iterating on the stuff everything has happened so fast because you can basically stand on the shoulders of giants like i looked at for example i bring up the the liquidity mining page of sandbox and i can still see remnants of yam in there and you know that the and yam was basically forked from you know a couple of other contracts with a really slick interface so i think you can actually trace the lineage not just of the source code that you're forking back to synthetics or compound or whatever but even some of the ux features and innovations like you can still kind of see traces of it in the newer protocols that come out in a weird way those definitely yams it was like pretty crazy everyone was like basically watching while the vote delegations would meet the quorum or the the goal it was like an hour or two before and it was just about to hit it and i think at that moment i took a step back mentally and i'm like holy shit this is crazy <laughs> yeah why do we even care right this is insane if this is like the future of finance thousands of people around the world trying to like figure this out and coordinate decent incentives and makes you wonder it almost felt like a huge raid and then those it's like in warcraft right? it's like you were well like only on a raid and it's like we're all fucked we all lose money <laughs> if we don't like kill the dragon right or kill a raid boss and sometimes you don't which in yam's case we did it it was a bug the dragon basically devoured us in that instance yeah i had some sleepless nights and you know it was just august it was only just maybe 6 weeks ago but it seems like a lifetime ago already Yeah, that's insane. Six weeks ago, are you kidding me? <laughs> What's next for on your plate? I guess I want to talk about uh, battle racers for a bit because battle racers still ongoing, but we we kind of hit some massive delays, and you know that's just the nature also of a lot of these blockchain game projects is that a lot of things you're doing for the first time and you don't have a real good visibility on. like when things are done and at the same time you pretty much have a community who's waiting on you to deliver them something because they paid for assets or they're waiting on your news but uh like one of the things what happened to us was that we had to move basically from loom as a sidechain uh to matic after we used loom actually we spent several months to kind of make sure that people could transfer their items from loom to ethereum mainnet and we basically made the switch to go to matic because we could see that loom was kind of not being as responsive as a like the game layer 2 that they were initially trying to be while it was a pretty good move it actually set us back a lot because like not only did we kind of repeat all of the work we had done for loom to do it in matic but it also kind of uh, burned out our devs a little bit like just going from one sale to another doing the parts transfer and basically having to throw that away and make a new one it's been a challenge the game is still up in the central and you can play it now but there's not been a lot of i would say visible progress and we've actually been making some cool things in background that we we haven't shown our community yet i think we have some i would say fundamental changes to how the game is played my team would kill me if i shared more now but it's something that we can share with community very soon also because uh, we're we're kind of uh, stuck in this like, come on let's have something to show before we really talk about it we don't want to shill anything without having anything solid that's when i kind of decided to focus my energy on you know what's around the corner what's in the future and that's what led me to in experimenting on the nft and defi space what happened with loom was unfortunate right very 
in the end, like all of these like systems that ultimately, you know, until they're actually decentralized, not on a token basis, but on a like operational basis. In the end, just a bunch of humans working on a GitHub repo. Humans are like, unfortunately, pretty fickle, right? That was definitely unfortunate. And it definitely set up many projects, you know, in the space back a bit, like just porting over the assets, you know, saving the data, right? I guess in terms of like, so far, it's definitely been tough, right? Like building a blockchain game and you're being one of the first. You're trying to invent new things at the same time. You hope it's fun. You want your community to make money. And at the same time, I would say that there's a push and pull with dealing with a community because you need to have a vision. And that's why I'm kind of uh, critical of these new DeFi, I would say, forks that start with community first without the product. Because in my experience, like community is super important. But if you don't bring your vision and your product to the table, your community can basically eat you alive because that vision will still have to come from you and they have to buy into it. You cannot make that vision basically by committee or by community. You still need leadership, right? And, you know, a vision for follow. Exactly. And leadership is somewhat centralized. Leadership is like, you know, simply understanding and engaging your community and talking to them and figuring out what they want and like kind of managing the expectations and delivering something that, you know, you think they'll enjoy. And oftentimes it's like oh, actually really hard. <laughs> Even the best projects, they've had tough times with their community. There have been times when maybe some valued community members have have rage quit, or maybe there are times when even the biggest supporters have questioned whether this project will make it. It happens to all projects, even the best ones. If you were talking to another founder right today that wanted to build a unique, you know, gaming experience using the different building blocks of crypto, DeFi, NFTs, et cetera, right? What sort of advice would you give that to that founder or that builder out there? I'm actually uh, in kind of a secret project now that is also like full of uh, ideas and full of cool things. And uh, the hardest part is that there's so much possibility space that you kind of have to whittle itself to something that you can execute. A lot of the failures in the crypto space have been, I would say, a mismatch of what the dreams are, what the vision is, and what the current ability is to execute. And of course, you want to reach your dream. The vision has to be much larger than you can do now, but you kind of have to get there step by step and not try to shoot for, I'll make World of Warcraft, but in the blockchain from day one when you're just starting on Crypto Zombies tutorial, right? So you definitely have to have a way to kind of progressively get there, especially if you sell assets to your community. Because once you sell either an ERC-20 token, some NFTs, then you're basically morally bound to deliver something and that's a huge responsibility and sometimes that's kind of where it fails wherein the founders feel such a huge amount of responsibility but they realize that like what they sold initially in the vision was not what they could deliver anymore or maybe it wasn't even like the best way for the project to move forward that's really tough and there's no way to kind of figure out how to do it rather than by going through it one of the very interesting things I've noticed, uh, at least thought about in DeFi, is just like some of the best creators and builders that are able to build protocols that other people use as Lego blocks, right? Or building blocks. They're generally very good at collaborating with others. They're willing to prioritize that. They're willing to dedicate resources to that. And with something, you know, with the gaming industry, I feel like that's also fairly antithetical, especially given, you know, the level of craftsmanship that's usually like uh, held 
by various studios, right? You know, there's a director, this produces. And like a lot of these games, like in many senses, like I've run, my understanding, like, would you say like in a dictatorial manner? <laughs> a lot of people feel like, you know, I'm the creative director. I can do what I want. But even then, the the way that AAA games are built, the way that a lot of mobile games are built is that you kind of protect your intellectual property from the eyes of other people, from media, and basically have a finely crafted PR structure. Tell Apple and Google and Sony and Microsoft where you're ready, but everyone else is under NDA. So going into DeFi and NFTs where things are a lot more open, for me personally, it's a breath of fresh air. I've always liked cooperation. I like cooperating with people who are you know, in some sense, my competitors, because we can reach a greater goal together. But I would say that's how I'm built personally. And I guess that's why I'm drawn to the crypto space. A lot of the game industry is not like that. And that's just how the the structure of the business is built. And again, arguably, this uh, environment actually might attract different personalities to go build games. For sure. If you wanted to be basically handing down orders on what how to execute your creative vision, you're probably not the best founder for crypto, right? Stop building on me. That's not how you're supposed to build, you know, use my NFTs or use my tokens. God damn it. Exactly. I'll share with you uh, a story. So because of Axie Infinity and because of SLP, uh, what's happened is that actually a lot of players from the Philippines have started playing this game basically for income. A lot of people have lost their jobs due to COVID. The the coronavirus situation six months in is still really bad, and people are either fully unemployed or underemployed. And what happened was that from word of mouth, people actually started learning about Axie Infinity and this currency called SLP that you can win by farming the game. This has kind of snowballed, and I'm onboarding maybe three to five new players every single day. And that's just me. There are other people who are onboarding a lot of different players. And now Philippines is like the largest segment of players in Axie Infinity. And we're basically onboarding dozens of people who are new to crypto for the first time. Like they're not in here, you know, because they heard about decentralized technology or whatever. They're here because they need something. And that something is they need to earn money. And they heard that they can earn money playing this game. That's actually super cool. It's, it's been saving a lot of lives here in the Philippines, honestly. And it's something that I think can uh, not only bring crypto mainstream, it will actually fulfill a social cause that kind of gets lost in the narrative of DeFi and yield farming, where you know the, someone with $500,000 can click two or three times and then they're earning thousands of dollars a day. These people may be earning something like $200, $400, $500 a month, which is nothing for yield farmers. But for them, it's the world. It's food on the table. It's higher than the salary they could get from their jobs that are currently available. Safety even? Yeah, they're playing at home, right? They're not going to get sick. And I think a lot of crypto people are still kind of very, I would say, skeptical about the power of blockchain games to kind of help society as a whole. But I'm in the middle of it right now. And I say it's such a powerful role for society. And we're doing it via crypto. And that's just super cool. This adoption, yeah, it comes from different, you don't expect it. Just thinking about like this example, right? What building blocks of crypto do you think needed to come together for players, like active players to kind of like get SLP, then sell it? I assume that's what happened. 
we really have to thank our patron saint Hayden Adams for Uniswap. I think this would not be possible without these building blocks of DeFi and just having your own ERC twenty was just such a pain. Just maybe a year and a half ago because you needed permission to list it somewhere for it to be worth any money. IDEX was terrible, basically. You could have a currency, it's great. Anyone could build an ERC-20, but actually distributing it and having it worth any money, that was such a hard part. And that was what most people spent a lot of money from their ICO race, kind of optimizing towards building distribution for their token. And Uniswap basically blew that away and let any project, you know, let alone a game, to permissionlessly have a token. Like, who knew that a small love potion could be saving lives in the Philippines, right? Nobody could really have foreseen that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that, like, automated, like, makes essentially, like, it's like a small piece of the puzzle, but imagine all the other stuff is unlocked by these scudding blocks. People are generally, like, not very connected to, like, arguably as well, like, the impact of crypto to with real like kind of people outside of the like generation, <laughs> the degen space, right? Like all the pure crypto native space, it's rarely seen and people don't connect with it. And I think a lot of people have definitely left crypto in the last couple of years, just simply because of like, they feel like they've been building tech for tech's sake, right? Definitely can be like a bit of a grind of like, what are you building this for, right? Yeah, a lot of people have built some really cutting edge tech without finding any users, right? It's tough, right? And I do think that you have different skill sets that you need to do well on various levels of the tech stack, right? As you go up the stack, it favors coordination uh, a lot more. Yeah, you can see this with DeFi a lot, right? Where they're saying that uh, the chief meme uh, creator is now at par with your founding engineer. To a large sense, it's true, right? If you've got good memes, that's respect, right? It's to socially engineer something like that. Working on anything else that's interesting in the space or not yet? You're definitely looped into the wifey crowd, I noticed recently. Yeah, the wifey crowd is uh, super cool. And it, it actually kind of happened by accident because Andre created the concept of the insurance cover as NFT. I'm actually a big fan of Nexus Mutual. I bought some NXN, bought some cover just very shortly after I started yield farming. But when Andre created a basically tokenized NFT version of that cover, and I will say this phrase only once, like few really understood what it meant. And what it meant, because I was seeing it as an NFT, it was transferable, for example. I could buy this cover. I could transfer it to someone. I could dynamically reprice it. I could sell it at the profit to someone that needs it more than I do. And that wasn't something I can do by doing cover inside of NXM. And I guess one of the quote-unquote innovations I did was I sold the NFT inside of the Rarible marketplace where they had this Rarity liquidation mining. Introduced the swarm of DeFi to Rarible. Rarible had already been gaining a lot of traffic uh, up to that point. But just that kind of powder keg moment that insurance as NFT was available in Rarible, it just kind of blew up and so much traffic came into Rarible, and I do not claim to be like the sole cause of any of that in any way, but a lot of DeFi money actually, you know, were buying art NFTs for the first time. And there was like this tangible mixing of NFT and DeFi that wasn't there before. And, you know, it's produced some pretty tense moments. For better, for worse, NFTs and DeFi are, I would say, more forever entangled together because of the why ensure NFT. 
That was like a anime crossover. It's totally unexpected. It's like, you're not Nexus Mutual on Marvel. What are you doing here? And I think definitely it's like sparked a lot of, a lot more creativity. You just need, you know, different people to take one step forward, right? Like step by step. Yeah. And then shortly after that happened, uh, there was the concept of NFT staking per se that I had never seen before. Like, I thought I was so smart buying cover from Nexus Mutual and then selling it to these people in Rarible. But these people actually made more money than I did because they were staking the NFT covers uh, for safe. So, you know, that was kind of mind boggling to me as well. Do you have any final thoughts, things you want to shout out, you know, things to check out before we end the podcast? We are at kind of this uh, explosion in the NFT and DeFi space. There's a lot of experimentation going on. There's a lot of skepticism going on. And I would say there's a lot of new and weird things that are being tried. But if you're a founder that is trying to kind of make your mark in this space, I would say that like this is the perfect time to actually make your mark. Like Don't try to create a food clone or don't create some of those uh, zero-sum money games. There's actually a lot of positive-sum games combining NFTs and DeFi especially if you can help create the primitives and building blocks that a lot of these other projects can use tomorrow. Let's build that together. Let's get in some Discord, Telegram groups. Let's jam, you know, exchange stupid ideas. I'd love to hear all of them because this is just the most exciting space in crypto, in my opinion, right now. That's a great note to end with. Well, thanks, Gabby, for jumping on the podcast um, this week. And thank you. If you enjoyed what you listened to and are interested in supporting this podcast, then please follow us on Twitter at Wizard of Dabs. The show notes will be on our website, and if you want to continue the conversation, join our Telegram group. All links will be in the episode description. Thanks for listening.